Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a really painfully bad joke. A mushroom walks into a bar, and the bartender says, Get out of here. We don't serve mushrooms here. The mushroom says, Why not? I'm a fun guy. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from writer Ashley Cardiff. She's author of the comic memoir Night Terrors. We'll hear more from her later. Also, we speak with superstar comedian Kevin Hart about his stand-up concert film Let Me Explain. And let me explain what else is on the show. All right. All right. Humorist and TV host Aisha Tyler tells us how to behave. Britlit critic Terry Eagleton tells us why Americans smile when they're on TV. And we celebrate America with frozen beer. From Japan. <laughs> and if all of this sounds familiar, that is because this is an encore broadcast of an episode we first aired in July. So cast your mind back to longer days and trees with leaves on them when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. <laughs> We are joined by Evan Goldstein. He's the editor of Arts and Letters Daily. Evan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about what we don't know because we use the Internet all the time. I thought we knew everything because of the Internet. Yeah. I don't know, how can I've, there be... I've never felt smarter, Evan. There's things I don't want to know that I know now because of the Internet. Well, uh, I'm, I'm talking about the concept of unintentional knowledge, something I hadn't heard of till I read an article by Julio Alves. The essay appeared in the Chronicle of Higher Education. What is he talking about? He, he noticed this in his students, that increasingly they were basing all their research on articles and other online sources. Mm -hmm. And the the search engines for these things, as as we all know, are brilliant, and they land us generally exactly where we think we want to go. But Alves is really concerned about the information that we don't know we should be looking for. The stuff that you find when you're looking for something else, for instance. So like if you're looking for one book, you may stumble upon another book or something like that? Precisely. Uh, Alves is a huge admirer of library stacks. He sounds like a man who spent a a number of of years buried in them. (laughs) And uh, he points to, you know, finding in this old system, finding on an index card the call number, you, you wander back. You maybe find that particular book, hopefully you do, but you also see what's around that book. And you find related topics, other sections, spines catch your your attention. And that whole process, he thinks, is sort of a fount of unintentional knowledge that's lost when we just search exactly for the terms we want to find. Sure, but I mean, isn't that what's happening on the internet all the time? I mean, I feel like I surf the internet and constantly stuff is being thrown at me that I didn't expect to stumble upon. I think he'd say that he sort of agrees. I mean, uh, there's no doubt that there is more out there to read. But he points out that that book-based reading, linear reading, kind of thing that happens when you turn page after page, tends to stick in our brains much longer than the sort of thing that comes across your Twitter feed over the course of a day. Well, I look forward to him making this into a slideshow so I can uh, (laughs) read this while I'm eating a sandwich at work. Evan Goldstein, thanks so much for the small talk. My pleasure. And now, let's head directly to cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a surfer hanging 10 on a wave of booze. First, the history part. This coming week, back in 1962, Andy Warhol's first paintings of Campbell's soup cans were unveiled. You undoubtedly know about them. Michelle Phillippe is here with some details you might not know. Andy Warhol painted soup cans because he really liked soup. Also because he wanted to examine the appeal of mass-produced commercial art to the modern audience. But he chose soup as his subject because he liked it. According to him, quote, I used to drink it 
I used to have the same lunch every day for 20 years. Some say he often paired the soup with Coca-Cola. Warhol debuted the soup can paintings in his first one-man gallery show, not in his home base of New York City, but in LA. He got a checklist of every kind of soup Campbell's made and churned out a silkscreen portrait of each can. Then he displayed them on a little ledge, kind of like products on a grocery shelf. The art world reacted with curiosity and amusement. A nearby LA gallery put a stack of actual Campbell soup cans in the window with a sign that read, get them cheaper here, three for 60 cents. Eventually, of course, the 32 paintings were recognized as the breakthrough work of a new genre, pop art. Warhol and Campbell's became linked in the public mind. The company even gave Warhol soup can labels to use as invites for another exhibit in 1965. But that came later. At that first gallery show, Warhol only sold six of the paintings. One of them to actor and artist Dennis Hopper. He paid a hundred bucks. In 2006, a Warhol soup can sold for over $11 million. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I'm here at Chef Jose Andreas's restaurant Bazaar in the SLS Hotel Beverly Hills. It's right down the street from where Warhol soup cans were first displayed. Rob Floyd is lead bartender here. Rob, what cocktail did this inspire you to make? I immediately got in touch with Jose Andres, and um, we decided to use uh, really fresh tomato water. Kind of like Campbell's tomato soup. Exactly, exactly. Did you put Coke in there with the tomato? I didn't. I didn't. I wanted to. I, but I thought it was really interesting that he said either Prince or Pauper, it tastes the same. He said that about Coke? That's a quote from Warhol, that if you're a billionaire or if you're the guy off the street, it tastes the same. He loved that consistency. Well, you've got enough stuff here to believe that this is going to be a billionaire-style drink. (laughs) Here, You've got like a lot of carafes of different juices. How is this thing made? Basically just a take on a Warhol Bloody Mary. So here we use gin. It can be made with vodka, half ounce of lime, half ounce of lemon, celery water. I think he'd appreciate the mix of different colors. That's for certain. (laughs) Uh, Then we're going to go to the tomato juice. Dash of Worcestershire, dash of uh, Tabasco, and a dollop of horseradish. Fill it up with ice, and we're going to shake it. All right. And uh, since this is based on avant-garde art... You have an avant-garde garnish, I understand? Right. It's called creating an air, a bubble bath over the top of a cocktail. It's based on sucrose, which you can get at any store, especially health food stores, tomato water, and horseradish whipped with a hand blender. All right, so that goes on top, and you're stirring the whole drink with a celery stick, which is sort of like a paintbrush, maybe, the leafy part. All right, here we go. Oh, man, extremely light. It's like sipping a cloud. That's beautiful. Now, here's the thing, though, to keep with the theme. Can you replicate that 32 times for me right now? Absolutely. We'll see if we can finish all 32 together. Uh, yeah. So, Brendan, I have visited Warhol's grave in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and you will always find Campbell's soup cans left by admirers there on the headstone. Oh, wow, that's kind of touching. Right? Actually. Although that would be littering with someone else's grave. <laughs> that's true. 
<laughs> Let's see, Andy's still turning trash into something else. It's nice. He's a magician. Sure. Ladies and gentlemen, you'll find all our recipes on our magical website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've made some small talk, sipped a drink, just one more thing needed to get this party started, some music to play. For that, we turn to Nick Krill. His Delaware-based indie rock group, The Spinto Band, is riding a wave of praise for their latest album. It's called Cool Cocoon, which is also an apt description of their sound. Here's Nick to suggest some tunes from other musicians. Hi, everybody. This is Nick Krill from The Spinto Band. Um, I have a few songs I'd like to share with you as part of my dinner party soundtrack. My first track is Pueblo Nuevo by the Buena Vista Social Club. So the Buena Vista Social Club is this amazing collective of aging Cuban musicians recorded back in the late 90s. They kind of have this beautiful mix of jazz and Americana country thing. The arc of the song sort of matches a weird dinner party in a way. It starts off a little suspicious. Maybe you see someone across the room, they have an interesting drink, they're eyeing up an interesting book on the bookshelf, and as the piano riffs tumble around, the conversation begins to tumble around. Before you know it, you're, you're seated next to this person at the dinner table having a great time, and just in time for this trumpet fanfare at the end of the song to kind of herald in a successful dinner party. Okay, my second song, uh, I imagine this song being around a salad course and dinner party. Uh, the song is Brazil, performed by Les Paul. What makes me think of the salad course is there's these crazy little, really high-pitched sort of guitar stabs in this song. It reminds me of when you're eating a salad and you got a fork and you're stabbing a little renegade cherry tomato all over the plate, can't get it. But then, you know, you have Brazil in the background, and these little weird guitar stabs start coming in, and before you know it, you realize you're stabbing with your fork right along to the beat. Now, Les Paul is a really special guy. Not only is he a really cool sort of jazz and early rock and roll guitarist, but he's a crazy innovator. He um, pioneered the solid body electric guitar. He was a pioneer in multi-track recording. He's the king tinkerer, as, as far as I'm concerned. So my third song for the Dinner Party soundtrack is PYT, Pretty Young Thing, by Michael Jackson from the Thriller album. probably the best-selling album with a dude and a tiger photographed on it. The reason I chose PYT is mainly because it was co-written by Quincy Jones, and I would want nothing more than to have a dinner party with Quincy Jones. Not so sure if that will ever happen, so the next best thing would be to play a song that he produced at my dinner party and uh, have an imaginary conversation with him. I think, you know, people need to pay their respects to the original Michael Jackson sound effect in there. Not this Johnny-come-lately Bruno Mars character. So, uh, you know, traveling back up north to the 
the wilds of Delaware, leaving Brazil behind. Uh, love to share with you our, our new song, Shake It Off. I want to dedicate the weird noise in the beginning to Les Paul for his crazy noise innovations. Uh, I'll dedicate his chromatic, weird little solo lines to Buena Vista Social Club. I just hope that the beat on this number can make you bob your head or dance as much as a Michael Jackson song could. And above all, ladies and gentlemen, The guest list from Nick Krill of the Spinto Band. Their latest album is called Cool Cocoon. All right, then we're going to take a short break. Coming up, we celebrate the 4th of July by drinking Japanese beer. And superstar stand-up Kevin Hart reveals the secret to becoming tall. I just did a bunch of calf raises, and eventually it, it, it hit the spot. That and other stuff you didn't know hmm. when the Dinner Party Download continues. Shake it off. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, comic and TV host Aisha Tyler answers your etiquette questions. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's actor and comedian Kevin Hart. He's had scene-stealing small roles in big films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Little Fockers. And he had a big role in the big film, Think Like a Man. But he's best known for his stand-up comedy. This week, Let Me Explain, a movie about his recent comedy tour hits theaters. It was filmed mainly during a sold-out show at Madison Square Garden. Wow. When I met with Kevin earlier this week, I started by asking what led him to find his comedic voice. I think the one thing that's most important is being yourself. You know, it took me a lot of time to realize that I didn't have to pretend to be somebody else. Hmm. I didn't have to be a character on stage. I could be myself. And when people see that you have that quality, people root for you. In the beginning of, uh, I guess, in the beginning of my career, when I was attempting to be all of these other people, they were all pieces from someone else. You didn't know who the hell I was. Yeah. Once I grasped the concept of stand-up comedy and of writing a joke and of making a segue make sense, then then I said, you know what? I'm in the jello. I don't have to try and pretend. I can yeah. talk about me and my problems. Was there a particular joke that really broke through for you that you were like, man, I'm on to something? Yes. I mean, my first joke is when I talked about my, my wife at the time mm. and how my wife at the time, basically, we got into an argument. I knew I lost, though. I knew that I didn't win. I'll tell you how I knew that I lost the fight. Because when the cops came to my house, the cops, the cops asked me, did I want to press charges? That's how I know. No, like, that, that's how I know that it didn't go the way I planned it to, you know? Because at first, I thought it was a tie. But the way the cop looked at me, I could tell something was wrong. The way he looked, because he was like, oh, no. Oh, <laughs> Do, do you, you want to press charges? And I was like, what? What? You, you asking me? Do I want to? No, you need to be asking her that. He's like, from the looks of things, no, I don't. Okay. Well, there's this thing that you also do with your comedy. For lack of a better word, I'll call it the convoluted kind of story joke. 
And one of my favorite parts about this special is when you imitate a guy who's lying about why he's late for work, uh, <laughs> and he says that it's because he saw a baby crossing the road. So I decided to adopt the baby. What I did was I downloaded this app on my iPhone, this adopt the baby app, right? I put the barcode on the baby head. Boop. That way the baby knew he was my baby. I put the baby in the car. I go to pull off. I turn around. A deer was running towards the car. So I'm like, oh, this deer is about to eat the baby. That, that's what I'm thinking, right? But then I look closer. I noticed the front part of the deer was a deer. The back half was a zebra. It was half deer, half zebra. So I'm like, oh, it's a deer, bro. Like, that's what I'm thinking. How did this kind of become part of your style? Uh, I don't know. I just want to first say I don't do drugs. So don't don't blame it on that. No, man. You know what, dude? I'm uh. It's all about the way that you think, man. And I think I, I love putting that unexpected punchline in the story. I yeah. love going far left when everybody expected me to stay straight. Are you like writing that on a laptop? Where are you do? Where are you building that? These crazy. I just stories? jot down funny thoughts on my iPhone in a notepad. That's what I do wow. all day. I, I'm going to quote you. You said once, at the end of the day, I want to be part of the same conversation as Chris Rock, Eddie Murphy, Dave Chappelle, Bill Cosby, and Richard Pryor. First of all, is that why you wore that crazy leather shirt in yes, this sir. concert footage? Yes, sir. Because <laughs> you, you wear a black leather shirt, and Eddie Murphy famously wore the purple suit and the red suit. Paying homage. Yes, sir. So your comedy is, is, is pretty raw. Mm-hmm. And your, your kids, I think, are probably too young to have attended one of your events, I'm assuming. But do you ever think about the moment when they're going to tune in and check out dad's specials well my kids are very young my kids are eight and five and they've already had that moment i put my kids around what i do because i want them to understand what i do and why i do it i want them to have memories of their dad being on stage when they were little and they were sitting on the side but you're not worried about the salty language and the kind of adult situations no because they understand they know what's a bad word and what's not and they know Mm. what they can say and what they can't say now, do kids cuss when they leave the house? Of course. <laughs> How do I know that? Because I cussed when I left yeah. the house. I remember as soon as I left my mom's house, I just started letting them fly. Nobody was around <laughs> me. I did it just because I was could, just because I could. So I imagine that my sons, my daughter's going to do the same thing. It's just the understanding of it. All right. Well, you know, we we have two standard questions on our show that we ask each of our guests, and mm-hmm. I, I want to run them by you. The first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Um, did my really get stuck in a toilet and Soul Plane? <laughs> so Soul Plane is was one of your first uh, feature film appearances, and some people really really enjoyed it. Other people thought it was kind of goofy. Mm-hmm. I noticed that in this film, it starts with your touring all over your internationally, you're in Europe, and many people are like, you're from Soul Plane, the guy from Soul Plane, which isn't how people think of you in the United States, I think. No, no, did not you, at all. Yeah. <laughs> Two separate things. I mean, there was one point where it was years after I did Soul Plane, and <laughs> it was years after I was in London, and people were like standing outside of the radio station that I was at with Soul mm-hmm. Plane DVDs and posters, as if it just came out. <laughs> and did you want to take a picture and send it to the critics who maybe weren't so laudatory about Soul Plane? Uh, of course, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, our second question we ask guests is, tell us something we don't know, and this can be about you, something you, you've never told in an interview before, or it could just be an interesting fact about the world. All right, I'm about to give you a great piece of information. All right. I grew an inch the day before yesterday. I am now five foot five. Document it, write it down, and circle it. 
Yes. That's like Bobby Brady hanging off the, the, the uh, pull-up bar to get taller. How, this how did is you huge. do that? You're, do you, did you go to a plastic surgeon? or? No, nope, no plastic surgery at all. I just did a bunch of calf raises, and eventually it, it, it hit the spot. So right <laughs> now that inch is there. That's all I needed. I'm not doing any more. I don't want to push the envelope. I'm happy with this height. This is a great thing. Five five is good. What happens when you're, if one of your children gets taller than you? Are you do you think about that moment? Well, no, because I don't think it'll happen. <laughs> if they do get taller than me, I'm just going to hit them in the top of the head and make it go in reverse. <laughs> All right. Well, look, I, just one last thing. So one of, some of my favorite moments uh, in the uh, special is right after you do an impersonation of a crazy person mm-hmm. who's occasionally your ex-wife, you, you play a calm, serious person. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of like the typical radio voice and delivery. <laughs> so I was wondering if you if you could give me like a radio voice out, like your impersonation. It's my impression. This is my this is my radio voice impression. You ready? All right. Yeah. Well, you heard it here first. Kevin Hart's Let Me Explain in theaters July 3rd. Going to be epic. Kevin, I just want to tell you, congratulations, and we're looking forward to seeing you do what no one else has done. Wow. <laughs> All right. Coming up next, you're going to hear a hot song on the one and one played on the two and two. <laughs> Couldn't have done it better myself. <laughs> Enrico, Kevin Hales from my old stomping grounds in Philadelphia. All right. And he told me the city taught him how to, quote, not care about criticism, <laughs> which I guess means Philly fans were no kinder to him than they are to anyone else. Yeah. Well, they're known to throw batteries at opposing sports teams, is my understanding. Well, so. you know, actually, that's how we show respect. You know, if we hate you, really? it's, it's way worse. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> what is up with you guys? Um, anyway, folks, check out our website at dinnerpartydownload.org. Ow! A D battery, really? What? I really respect you. So influential cause a scene just like me. Five hundred dollar jeans and a white tee, make it look good in the hood like a icy. And now, time to eavesdrop. Ashley Cardiff is managing editor of The Gloss, a culture website for women. Her new book details her own sexual coming of age. Today, we overhear her tell a tale about her not so fantasy prince. Hi, I'm Ashley Cardiff. I'm the author of a new book called Night Terrors, Sex, Dating, Puberty, and Other Alarming Things. Here's a story from the book about a recurring sexual nightmare I used to have about Prince when I was eight years old. I don't mean that I was some kind of disaffected urban baby like those little kids whose parents are writers or architects or cartographers, and they wear miniature ascots and aren't allowed to have gluten. It wasn't like that at all. It's not that Prince or some intangible presence like him would seep along my dreamscapes, in which I'd be picking hot dog flowers with Turgenev and Billy Squire, and we'd laugh, and late 80s corporate rock would filter across the hot dog meadow, and it would be extremely funny. No. My recurring sexual nightmare about Prince was genuine. It always began with me standing in the garage alone. I'd be looking down the steep driveway from the house where I grew up in Northern California. I spent most of my time alone as a kid, so this wasn't all that strange, but something would strike me, and I'd stand and turn and gaze off a long way. Then I'd realize I could just make out faint strains of music in the distance. I would pause, disquieted there, and everything would become very still, like the way it gets before earthquakes. Then I would hear cruel laughter as the music became louder, and I would feel the urge to flee. The odor of evil carried even on that brisk wine country breeze. The chase would begin in the way you fathom events as they unfold in dreams because pervasive dread informs you. 
Suddenly I would be on my tricycle, handlebar streamers flying. My pudgy, uneven little legs pedaled urgently and I'd look over my shoulder to see nothing. Nothing. Still, my panic would mount. I could hear my heartbeat. I could hear the blood churn in my ears. The perspective would shift and behind me he would rise. Prince! On a colossal tricycle of his own design, purple and garishly decorated, leading a parade float, his minions dancing and fornicating in the tissue blossoms. The sky would darken and he would be there. The purple one, rising larger and larger still, his cheeks naked and full each time he peddled with heaving menace in his lace chaps. I did not understand the things he said or sang or why he gesticulated so faily, but I did understand he was coming for me. My desperate peddling could not be enough and was never enough. The dream would end just as the giant tricycle and what it represented engulfed me. The vision would dissipate and I'd awaken, shaking to the faint sound of his effervescent laughter. I was never sure what Nightmare Prince intended to do to me, specifically. But I knew that it would be erotic and strange and transgressive, and I'm still unsure if any of this makes me racist. I'm certain the dream postponed my adolescence a few months longer than it would have been, thanks to the correlation between sex and horror. I didn't realize that the Prince nightmare was really a nightmare about sex itself, that my kid brain had turned out an impressively lazy and no less bizarre metaphor. He was kind of a dark messenger from the realm of adulthood, intending to ferry away my innocence like some sort of silken caron with his butt showing. I had this nightmare six or seven times, until I hit the age when you start getting really into Prince and realize Sign of the Times is a phenomenal album. I mention all this because I recently had a dream in which I had pretty graphic sex with Prince, and it actually wasn't weird. Well, I mean, it was obviously weird once I woke up and thought about it, but while it was happening, it seemed reasonable. I guess that's what it means to be a grown-up. Ashley Cardiff reading from her memoir, Night Terrors, and you're listening to the Dinner Party Download from the artists currently known as American Public Media. If I was your best friend, would you let me take care of you? And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan, Americans, of course, celebrated our independence this week, right mm-hmm. on, which meant acres of hot dogs, city blocks worth of burgers, and oceans of the all-American beverage. Blue Gatorade. <laughs> no, I'm speaking of beer, the other oh. thing. Now, but here's the paradox. That your standard pale ale is considered a classic July 4th beverage, right? Summertime beverage. Sure. But it is best served cold. Most of the country is going through a heat wave. By the time you get to the bottom of the bottle, the beer is warm. But there is now a solution, Brendan. Yes. Frozen beer. Ah, yes. like a slushy. That is funny you should say that, because this week I headed over to Chaya in downtown L.A. It recently became the first American restaurant licensed by the Japanese company Kirin to sell this patented, apparently, frozen beer. And I started by asking manager Melissa Powell, is it like a slushy? Because that would be like a dream come true, it would be a beer plus slushy. I think it is kind of a dream come true. It is just a fresh poured beer with a frozen foam on top that is very similar to a beer slushy. It actually keeps your beer cold for 30 minutes longer than it normally would. Wow. Now the beer foam, 
is just that? It's just beer? It is. It's just beer. And it basically just is air that bubbles in the special machine that they have that sort of makes beer into foam. Now, it's got, obviously, beer has a lower freezing point than, say, water. How cold is this thing getting? I, w- I want to believe that it's kind of like the eyeball manufacturer in Blade Runner where it's frozen nitrogen level of cold. <laughs> This freezes at 23 degrees, so pretty cold. Okay, so not quite, but close enough. It's futuristic enough. Do you you know how long this technology has been around? You know, Japan seems to have everything before us. Japan does. This has been around in Japan, and, you know, I'm told that it's everywhere, that it's sort of a common thing now that bars just have frozen foam, that that's kind of a normal thing to have. And at this time of year, I know actually Japan is, you know, it's very hot here today, but my understanding is it would be this hot plus humid right now in Japan. Absolutely. Very brutal, hot, humid summers. And what better way to beat the heat than with a slushy beer? Quickly though, why just make the top part foamy? Why not make the entire beer, you know? You could. Um, Traditional beer drinkers like that liquid, like actually having that component, and the foam sort of seems like a treat on top. That's true, though. It would make you feel a little somehow five years old, or legally speaking, exactly <laughs> 21 years old, drinking a, a beer slushy all the way through. Yes, doesn't seem particularly sophisticated way to go. Um, all right, can we fire this thing up? Let's fire it up. So it really does look like one of those things that you see at the 7-Eleven churning. That's right. It does look like a fleshy machine, but it also has the added bonus of a sumo wrestler on top of my Kieran draft. The, the draft handle has a sumo wrestler on top. Sure does. And we're on the good end, because if you went around the other side, it's not pretty. <laughs> Seeing the sumo guy from behind. Yeah. We let Carlos deal with that. Carlos being the, the bartender who's going to service this thing in a second. Um, and really, it, it, looking through the window of this thing, it's like an entire machine full of the head of a beer. Yeah, as you've been standing here, it keeps turning and turning and adding more air into the foam, and it gets thicker and thicker and richer and more luscious and beautiful. I'll tell you, I ran this by one friend and said, frozen beer, what do you think? It's kind of like a beer slushy. And his initial reaction was kind of like, I don't know, I don't know if I can get behind that. It seems somehow denuding beer of its machismo. Sure. Um, we have people that aren't sure when they come, and then we convert them. I mean, like, I remember putting beers in the, in the freezer to make them cold faster at a party and having them explode. So it's nice to not have that out. Exactly. It's sort of the best of both worlds, putting it in the freezer and not having it explode. All right, let's do this. It doesn't really look that much different than a regular beer, except that the, the head basically has that kind of soft serve peak at the top of it that makes it look like a sundae. Can I just sip it right through the foam or do I put a straw in? Um, most people just sip it right from it. If you'd like a straw. No, the, <laughs> a grown gentleman. All right, here we go. Oh, wow. It really does. It really tastes icy. There's no water in this thing? No, it's just beer. It's just frozen beer. There's no water in it at all. That's fine. Well, I mean, obviously, beer has some water in it, but there's no added water. Exactly. All right. Oh, and I guess so the point would be also that it's not going to uh, water down the beer. It's like getting a cold beer without having to put ice in it or something. Precisely, yeah. The idea is that it will keep the beer colder longer. All right. I got mostly foam on that sip, so hold on. Wow, it is just barely at that level of cold that it's not quite hurting my lips. It's like a little bit more, and this would be a painful drink, but uh, I don't have to sue you. It's refreshing. Well, good. And uh, am I allowed to have this entire thing when I'm like on the job? I don't know. Absolutely. It's all for you, my friend. You're not my boss. I don't know that I can really get permission from you. I won't tell.
and Brendan, I should tell you, frozen beer also became available throughout Dodger Stadium. Nice. Right? So the next time a drunk fan spills beer on you, you can brush it off. But I hope, maybe. If you're fast. We'll we'll experiment. All right, people, we're going to take a break. When we return, comic and TV host Aisha Tyler stands up for American values. Our society is held together by the glue of kindness and YouTube kitten videos. Strong bonds when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, British author Terry Eagleton tells us what he thinks of our nation's can-do attitude. It is absolutely perniciously false. Oh, no, he didn't. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week, Terry should get one. Each week, <laughs> you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Aisha Tyler. She has had every gig a performer and humorist can have, but the short list includes a long career as a stand-up comedian. She played Charlie Wheeler on the sitcom Friends. She is the voice of Lana Kane on the animated series Archer. She hosts the popular podcast Girl on Guy, where she talks with dudes about video games and whiskey and stuff. And she is the new host of the improv comedy show Whose Line Is It Anyway, which relaunches on The CW July 16th. Her kind of semi-memoir, I guess, comes out this week. It is called Self-Inflicted Wounds. And Aisha, first of all, do you sleep at all? No. As you can see, I'm pounding coffee out of a beer bottle. That yeah. is true. <laughs> like are you coming for our jobs? Is that why you're here? Yes, I am. I'm just surveying public... First of all, I, I'm, I'm addicted to public radio, but I can't take your jobs because my podcast is just like completely unsuitable for broadcast. Okay, because otherwise you're the James Franco of comedy. James yeah, Franco looks... of comedy. All I need is a really creepy arc and a soap opera. <laughs> Um, and then I could be James Franco. And an Adderall habit. Yes, right? That helps as well. That would help. That would make me so much more effective. I think yeah, why so. are you drinking coffee out of a beer bottle? I'm so straight edge. Like, I, I have this kind of reputation for being like a bourbon drinker and, and a rager. But like at 8.30, I'm like, why am I not in bed yet? This all kind of plays into the book, I would say. It seems like you got a lot. You sowed a lot of your wild oats early. I started. I did start young. To judge <laughs> from your new book. It's basically a collection of stories of you making horrible mistakes. Terrible. Some, some of the chapter titles include The Time I Got drunk the night before the SAT and the time I almost set myself on fire but uh, we're kind of a big food show we Mm -hmm. like food here I love food too you want to tell us the story about the first time you ate sushi oh god yeah that's memorable so I had this this era where I was trying to be very cosmopolitan and um, I and this was kind of pre the sushi rave here I mean I think until maybe like 1994 if you mentioned sushi people just thought like a flap of raw fish (laughs) bones and all eyeball Mm, you know what I mean just yeah or like like just like a Japanese fisherman like kneeling on a dock just ripping a fish open with his bare hands so um I was going to sushi restaurants and I took this boy to like impress him I took this huge gob of wasabi I was trying to show my like spicy food and and uh, mm. and, and I had one of those like facial ex- eruptions where like, it's uncontrollable like you're trying to hold it in and I actually covered my face with both hands <laughs> Snot and other bodily fluids exploded through my tightened fingers. That's how violent this eruption Whoa. was. Like all over this guy, all over this guy. This is a very early date. This is like a first or a second date. Oh, wow! And you're now yeah. married, right? No, no, I did not marry that guy, and he really he made the right choice. But this, the current husband, the only husband, um, has suffered injuries far worse. It slings and arrows. Every morning he wakes up, just puts on like a hockey mask and a cup, and just waits for something terrible to go down. <laughs> Protect your eyes. Well, look, clearly you're just the person to give our listeners etiquette advice. And I think Brendan is going to take the first question. All right. So the first one comes from Danny in Chicago. 
Danny writes, I'm a video gamer. Sometimes I meet with friends to play at one of their houses. Here's the issue. One guy is way better than the rest of us, so he gets the lion's share of the playing time. Should he keep playing until he loses a life, which seems fair but frustrating, or should he cough up his controller after a set time? Uh, well, first of all, mm. your friend sounds like a little bit of a d- <laughs> um, Because, you know, the fact of the matter is this guy could go online and play strangers for hours on end and demonstrate his excellence to others and feel no no remorse or compunction about just, you know, slapping them all in the digital face for hours on end. But <laughs> sure. when you're with your friends, it is unfair to hog the game. And I'm sure he's also probably, he sounds like a smack talker. I'm just, I'm inferring from his general <laughs> posture that he's a jerk. But what can he do? He's good at the game. Yeah. Just hand over the controller because it is a game. It's just mm. a game. And now uh, mm. winning the game is not going to make you money or uh, get you on any kind of lists to meet the president. What kind of communist? Like, that's crazy. <laughs> this guy's never. good at the game. It's called a game because you're competing. It's not communism. That's kindness. Our society is held together by the glue of kindness and YouTube kitten videos. They should just eat Triscuits together then instead of playing a game. <laughs> Triscuits. No. No, here's my point. <laughs> if it's extreme, if no one can get this guy off the game, and uh-huh. I think, and when you look around, the, the battlefield is littered with the bodies of your friends. Mm. Um, pretty soon, you're going to look around, and the battlefield's going to be empty because your That's friends right. will have left you and gone to their other friend's house to play some soft game like Connect Sports. You've convinced me, and I think we should call it kindunism. Kindunism. All right. All right. Here's something from <laughs> Matthias in Turkey, and this we feel like you being a comedian, this is perfect for you. Okay. Matthias writes: So a friend of mine sends out a weekly email full of jokes. Mm-hmm. I've noticed many of them seem to be swiped from a certain public radio culture show I enjoy. <laughs> it could be a coincidence, but how do I mention this without it being an accusation? First of all, that was the softest and most elegant humble brag I've ever heard. There you go. Plugging, yeah. plugging your own show surreptitiously. Yeah. Um, yeah. God, this is really hard because... If you say, hey, I feel like I heard that joke on the radio, you're calling your friend a A liar liar. and also Mm. a plagiarist, which Mm. I think is even worse than being called a liar. This is a huge issue in the comedy world. Stealing is the worst. And, And just so people out there understand, stealing is so frowned upon. I think stealing, if you went to someone and you said, I have a body in my trunk. They might re- react with less uh, with less <laughs> anguish and concern than if you said mm. I stole a joke. Like like you have a wow. body in your trunk, they might be like, well, maybe the person did something wrong. Maybe it's their <laughs> fault. Someone will beat you up on behalf of somebody else for stealing a joke. But before we tell Matthias to go that far, maybe that's not uh, re- that's not resort to violence. I, sure. I think there are two ways to go here. One is to say, God, I love that joke. It's funny. I heard something just like it on this show, and mm. then send the link, and then stare at them. How about a little glare? How about a lingering look? After <laughs> or that? emoticon with the giant blinking eyes that just staring <laughs> at you out of your computer um the other way to go is to just put that email in your spam folder and ignore that friend and let him just be a liar (laughs) why are you reading a weekly email of jokes anyway matthias why are yeah matthias the internet's full of jokes that you can curate on your own and uh, let that guy just swirl in the same eddy with the emails from your mom that have all been completely debunked by snopes (laughs) and the ones from your uncle claiming that the president is part of a of some kind of muslim sleeper cell that's going to awaken at any time whenever you open an email and you see like different font sizes and colors just throw it in the trash immediately yeah. if there if there's if there's yeah. any variation in font period it's it's just for the garbage well let's be careful in our condemnation of matthias because he does listen to our show thanks for listening matthias you're a genius all right so here we have another question it comes from jim in ohio and jim writes i work in the land of cubicles i did that once we're kind of cubically here yeah, yeah. it's very cubically here Sorry. oh i love not-for-profit organizations come on now <laughs> i that was my first job was at a not-for-profit and you got out of there i ran <laughs> Man. Too much hugging. That, that's true. We hug a lot. So anyway, Jim works in the land of cubicles as well. Uh, and he writes, one of my associates, who is higher up than I am, has the window cube and always closes the blinds near him. 
During the morning, everyone is okay with this, but in the afternoon, the sun is on the other side of the building, so we want to open the blinds. But if you touch the blinds near him, he instantly closes them. This guy. He's a jerk. I know. I just picture that scene. As an alternative, we've offered him to switch cubicles. He refuses. What should we do? This guy's a sunlight Nazi. (laughs) Yeah. So here's the problem with this guy. He is creating a seasonal affective disorder problem in your office. Oh, there we Um, go. You don't want to run it up the food chain, though, because it feels a little petty, right? Yeah, of course. A Um, little petty. Yeah, right? (laughs) It's the pettiest of things. But, I mean, your work environment affects your productivity, doesn't it? So there's a couple things you can do. If you if collectively there's anybody else on your team who is of his level, mm-hmm. you might be able to get elect that person to speak to him. The, and you've already asked this guy to move, and he's refused to move. So it's like a Buddhist middle way. Um, <laughs> okay, you can do two things. You can one dismantle the mechanism so it no longer works. <laughs> I, that's what I was um, thinking. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, that's one way to go. <laughs> Break it uh, after work. But then it's open all the time, and you're going to roast in the morning. Who cares? And then you could actually go to the company and say, you know what, company, you would save a lot of money if you paid to have all the windows on this side of the building. Coated with UV, some kind of UV film. Air You'll conditioning. Redu- reduce your air conditioning costs. Keep the place cool in the summer, warm in the winter. What? Save the company thousands of dollars. Now, all of a sudden, I'm not a peon anymore. I've been vaulted over this jerk who never opens the blinds in the afternoon. And I'm his <laughs> boss, and I'm putting him in a coat closet. Wow. Aisha Tyler, she is a writer, a TV host, and also a corporate consultant, apparently. Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Um, I don't know that I helped anyone <laughs> in any way, but it was really enjoyable sitting with you guys, so thanks for having me in. Likewise. Thanks. Aisha Tyler, in addition to the trillion things we mentioned before, she hosts CBS's daytime show, The Talk, Man. and her latest book is called Self-Inflicted Wounds, Heartwarming Tales of Epic Humiliation. It'll almost surely make you feel way better about your own relatively minor mistakes. And for the ones which remain, we are always here to help. Write to us about your etiquette problems and we will pose them to an expert or to a celebrity posing as one. Just head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where an expert schools us on a dinner party worthy topic. This week it's our 4th of July edition. Our topic is America through the eyes of an Englishman. Our expert and Englishman is Terry Eagleton. He is one of the most influential literary critics in the world and he's the author of over two dozen books. He's written about literature, Marxism, Catholicism, His latest book is called Across the Pond, An Englishman's View of America. And Terry, I have to say I'm stoked you're here and I'm psyched to talk about your new book. Oh, thank you very much. Great to be here. Interesting. Well, you took my typical American introduction in stride like a true Englishman. (laughs) According to your book, my greeting was very American in that it was casual, was upbeat, and I assumed I could use your first name. You can indeed. I must say that if we were on American television now, it would be my duty to smile as soon as the camera comes out, nobody <laughs> in the whole of the rest of the world <laughs> smiles when they come on television but Americans. I think because self-presentation is so vital an issue in the States. But luckily, since this is radio, I have a very grim face here, so we're all right. Good to know, because stereotyping countries is a grim business. How <laughs> will we start with what you were just talking about? Why do you think Americans are so conscious about self-presentation? I talk in the book about the contradictions of that, actually, because on the one hand... 
a very commercial society is, of course, concerned with packaging and image and presentation. On the other hand, a very Puritan society, which I, as I argue in the book, I think America is in all kinds of ways, is concerned with, you know, what's inside. It's quite often you hear in the States, don't you, you know, what matters is what's inside you. Mm. Um, on the other hand, but as I say, I think it's an interesting contradiction there. Commercial Commercialism wants appearance, Puritanism wants the inner goods, the inner truth. Well, you talk about how Puritanism and commercialism live side by side in the United States. Doesn't that make us well-rounded? Well, I suppose there is, there is, I also argue in the book that there's a great American impulse to have everything, you mm-hmm. see. More is better in the States, really, which is somewhat at odds with a certain European more minimalist way of looking, which is a certain sparseness, a certain austerity even. The American impulse is to amplify, whereas the impulse in Britain and indeed in Ireland, where I'm sitting now in Dublin, where I live, is to diminish. A friend of mine in Ireland, I asked him how he was and he said he was fine except for a touch of cancer. (laughs) Don't think you'd hear that in the States. (laughs) No, I don't don't think you would. Well, I want to step back for a second. So at, at the beginning of your book, you say, quote, if we're not able to stereotype each other with a fair degree of accuracy, social life would grind to a halt. Mm. But you say that Americans are uncomfortable with the idea of stereotypes. Can you explain why? Well, I think if millions of people have lived in the same situation over donkey's years, you know, it would be astonishing if they didn't have certain mental and cultural traits in common. And I think uh, you know, Americans do as much as anybody else. I think the American resistance to that, which you ask about, is largely to do with individualism. America is a very rampantly individualist society and doesn't like lumping people together. But I once had a friend who was an American sociologist who... Um, told me he'd once gone into his department at university and he saw his secretary in tears and he tried to console her as best he could and then he walked down the corridor and he looked into an office and there was another secretary in tears. Hmm. Terry, he said, one secretary in tears is tragedy, two is sociology. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so in, in a way your book is an exercise in stereotyping and I'd like to read some of the things that you say are stereotypical American, and then have you explain where you're coming from, if that's okay. Sure. All right. The first one is, quote, Americans believe in the fraudulent doctrine that you can do anything you want if you try hard enough. Yes. I hear that so often in the States and in in kind of jaded, cynical Europe. It has a very strange ring to it. Mm. I hear this perhaps more on television than in real life, to be sure, I hear this sort of mantra, which is that, you know, if only you try hard enough, if only you believe deeply enough, you can crack it. It is absolutely perniciously false. And it can set up expectations and desires and ideals that then result in people being disappointed and disenchanted and so on. Mm. You believe that if you can, if only you try and crack it, we believe that uh, if at first you don't succeed, Try, try, and then give up. There's no point in making a bloody fool of yourself. (laughs) All right, let's move on to another one of your observations about America. Quote, one of the grave moral defects of Americans is they tend to be straight, honest, and plain speaking. Oh, it's terribly boring, yes. It's awful. <laughs> you know, I find it so embarrassing. You know, I talk to Americans, I suddenly realize that they mean every word they say. You know, whereas I come from a long tradition of Irish jokers and twisters and Oscar Wilde's and people who wouldn't be caught dead meaning what they say. Indeed, it was Oscar, Oscar himself who once said, you know, I, I live in dread of not being misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> Which, as I think I say in the book, well, you wouldn't hear on the lips of Pat Robertson or Dick you, Cheney. You or, would you not. Know. Again, there's a, there's a very apt 
admirable honesty about that very Puritan value. I think it's again part of the Puritan heritage. It means you can do business. It means you know where you are. But I think it it, it also involves a kind of uneasiness with play and famously with irony and so on. So you're obviously a student of America. You've spent a lot of time here. What is one American trait that you wish you had as an Englishman? Uh, If we had a little bit more of the zest and affirmation, we might stop complaining and grousing Mm. and grumbling as much as we do. On the other hand, I have a kind of uh, sort of a kind of affection for that. You know, I mean, the, the British, as I say in the book, believe the future will be very different, namely worse. <laughs> so, Rico, this all reminds me of a conversation you and I had a while back with the British musician Billy Bragg. Okay. Billy said Downton Abbey is how Americans want to think of Britain, yeah. and Breaking Bad is how Brits want to think of America. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I remember. It's like finger sandwiches versus meth. That's pretty much the equation. (laughs) Their tea is pretty strong, though. That's true. All right, that concludes this encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download for this week. Next week is our annual post-Thanksgiving all-food episode, Mm -hmm. so show up hungry for that. Yes. Till then, you can keep up with us all week long on Twitter. Our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Our associate producer is Jackson Musker. Brittany Martin is our web PA. Our interns are James Delahousie and Davey Kim. Engineering help this week came from Ravi Carmen. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to play on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. The band Ockerville River are touring Europe now in support of their latest album, The Silver Gymnasium. Here's a track from it called It Was My Season. Bon appétit. Tell me a reason to break things off. Stop the bleeding when it's my season. Mine was just ready. Your eyes they went hard. Our parents were freaking, but it was our season. All that time ago. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. We can't wait to see you next week. Oh, please. It's sure to be worse than this week. Ah, cheer up, dour British person. Yeah, have this half-full glass of frozen beer. It's almost empty. And it's Luke cold. <laughs>